Hello folks, this is J.B. Hickson with Not By Works Ministries. I hope you're having a great Thanksgiving week. Due to the Thanksgiving holiday, as well as my upcoming travel schedule, we will not be recording our usual midweek podcast on how to read and understand the Bible for the next three weeks. Instead, during that time, we will be posting archived messages on meaningful topics that I know you'll find edifying. We will return to our series on how to read and understand the Bible on Wednesday night, December the 15th. For today's midweek podcast, I am posting an archived message entitled, Defending Grace Graciously. I first gave this message at a conference in Wisconsin back in 2016. In it, I talk about the importance of defending the doctrine of grace when it comes to the gospel, but also the importance of doing so graciously. I hope you enjoy this message, which has never before been heard on our podcast channel, and I hope you have a blessed Thanksgiving Day tomorrow. Please reach out to us anytime through our mobile app or online at notbyworks.org if we can ever be of assistance. Now, God bless you, and here is Defending Grace Graciously. Okay, sorry about that. I was back extolling the virtues of the Cowboys and other deeply spiritual matters. So, um, I'm glad you interrupted me because, you know, there's no end to the amount of wonderful things you could talk about the Cowboys. We'd be here all day. I am not. Yeah, last week was a great week for us because anytime the Cowboys win and the Packers and Vikings don't, which is what was the case last week, that's a great victory. Of course, the Vikings didn't play last week, but they didn't win. So that was good. And I was in Minnesota last week, so I had quite a lot of fun about that. And I have to confess, I weeks ago, when I first got scheduled to come here, and I was aware that the Cowboys and Packers were playing on the 16th, I began praying for the Cowboys, because, you know, God cares about football, for the Cowboys to win so that I could really have some fun. But then as I got here last night and was the boys were setting up and I was meeting with the elders, then I began to just, God just softened my heart and, I, and he said, you know, these folks have suffered enough. Uh, how would you how would you feel if the Cowboys had lost, you know? And so, but anyway, um, let's get into our material now for this second session. I'm calling this defending grace uh, graciously. The question we want to start with, and I'm sure we know the answer in this audience, and that is: Is grace worth fighting for? And uh, uh, to answer that question, let me invite you to turn to Galatians chapter one. I always like, I've always loved Galatians because it is uh, the earliest book that Paul wrote. So here you have one of the most prolific writers in the New Testament. <clears throat> Not the most prolific, by the way. Who wrote most of the New Testament? Bible trivia for you here. No. Luke, thank you, Pastor. Yeah, Luke wrote more than Paul. Unless, unless you believe, as Jesus and I do, that Paul wrote Hebrews. If, he, if you include Hebrews in Paul's writings, then Paul catapults to number one. But Luke and Acts together are more, have more content than the 13 Pauline epistles. Um, but nevertheless, obviously Paul, a great apostle of the faith, great missionary, and uh, so much truth that we know from God... Uh, through Paul's writings. And Galatians was the first one. So it sort of answers the question, what was so important in the mind of God that he chose to reveal it first through Paul's pen? You think of all the amazing truths that we learn about our Lord and Creator through Paul's pen. This was first. It's also fascinating to me that uh, you know, he wrote this very early on in his ministry. Remember, he was saved on the road to Damascus. He spent 14 years sort of alone with the Lord and training and whatever. Then he, he starts out on this missionary journey in 48-49 A.D. with Barnabas from, from Antioch in Syria. And then he comes, and it was on that missionary journey that he evangelizes the region of southern Galatia. So Iconium, Lystra, <coughs> excuse me, Lystra, Derby, all of those churches were started. <coughs> Incredible evangelistic harvest. And then he comes back to uh, Antioch to give the report. And no sooner that he gets back that he hears this report that these new converts are being led astray by some false teachers that had crept in. And so the uh, Apostle Paul, I take it, 
can't prove this, but I think it's if you piece it together, it's the best we can tell. Uh, leaves Antioch. He's headed for Jerusalem for the famous Jerusalem Council that we read about in Acts 15, which occurred in 50 A.D. And en route to Jerusalem, I believe Paul penned the words of Galatians. And he, wanted, he was so troubled by what he had heard that he wanted to address it forthwith. Now, obviously, he wrote it under the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, but uh, it's amazing. And listen to one of the things that he says right off the bat. This is, again, amazing to me that the, the Apostle Paul, the first thing he deals with of all the amazing truths contained in all of his epistles, eschatological truth, Christological truth in Ephesians and Colossians, uh, soteriological truth in Romans and Galatians. This is what he deals with. He says in verses 6 and 7, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Uh, Anathema is the Greek word. It literally means come under strict judgment. Then he says, he repeats that in verse 9, and then in verse 10 he says, Now do I persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So, in answering the question, is grace worth fighting for? I think we have three reasons at least why the resounding answer to that is yes. Uh, First of all, Paul makes it clear that the gospel of grace is unambiguous. It's unambiguous. And you see this there in verses, the end of verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7. In the New King James, which I'm reading, he says, excuse me, first of all, you are turning, there are some who trouble you to vert the gospel of Christ, or verse 6 rather, he says you are um, turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. That's the word heteros means different, right? Uh, it means another of a different kind. Okay, and then he says in verse seven, which is not another. Now it's somewhat confusing in the old King James because it says you're returning to another gospel, which is not another. And you're like, well, which is it, Paul? Make up your mind. But of course, the Bible wasn't written in English. The Bible was written in Greek in the New Testament. And so those are two different words. Because in verse 7, he says, which is not another, and he's using the word alas, which means another of the same kind. Now, what do I mean when I say Paul is saying the gospel is unambiguous? Well, I think it hinges on understanding his clarification there. When he says, you're turning to a heteros gospel, which is not just an alas gospel. Let me illustrate it this way. Alas would be if my wife told me to run to the store and get some apples, and she said, be sure and get red delicious apples, right? Now, being a man, first of all, I only heard part of what she said because I wasn't listening. (laughs) Second of all, I'm a hunter, so I'm going to get in and out of that store as fast as I conceivably can. Fortunately, the produce section is usually by the front of most grocery stores. And the first thing that looks small, round, and red is what we're going to get. Right? <clears throat> reminds me of the guy, this is a digression, but it reminds me of the guy whose wife uh, sent him to the store and said, uh, Honey, uh, can you please go get a dozen eggs? And, oh, thank you. Can you please go get me a dozen eggs? And if they have avocados, get six. So he comes back a few minutes later, and he's got six dozen eggs. And she says, six dozen eggs, what's going on? He goes, they had avocados. All right. So so I go in, and I come back with apples, but I bring back Braeburn apples. My wife's going to say, I told you to get red delicious apples. And I'm going to say, an apple's an apple. What's the big deal? No, I really need it. So that's alas, you know, different, but same kind. And Paul is saying that this gospel that these false teachers were preaching after he and Barnabas left that region was not this. It wasn't just a minor modification. It wasn't close enough to be good enough. Paul says, no, it was a heteros gospel. So if I went in search of 
an apple, but I came back with an orange, that might be closer to the significance of the term Paul is using, but really it's even that you could say they're part they're both fruits, right? <clears throat> So it's even stronger than that. Paul's saying, you know, it's like apples and, and like poison, right? It's, it's like something that will hurt you. There's no comparison whatsoever between the gospel that the Judaizers were promoting and, and the gospel of free grace that Paul had taught, the biblical gospel. See, these Judaizers were coming in and teaching a heteros gospel. They were saying that it's not enough just to believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross for your eternal salvation. you also got to be circumcised, keep the law, and do a number of other things. And, and Paul says, no, it, it's completely unambiguous. It is the pure gospel. But then he also goes on and indicates that the gospel of grace is worth defending because it's unadulterated. Uh, this word is interesting in verse 7. It's the word pervert, at least in the New King James. Um, it's, it's the Greek word metastrepho, uh, and it's only used, besides here, two other times in, in various forms in the New Testament. So it's a very unique term. It's often translated distort or twist in extra-biblical literature. And Paul says these ones that are preaching this heteros gospel, right, are, are metastrepho, they're, they're distorting the gospel. Now, it's, it was interesting to me when I looked at the other two places where this term is used, it, it's very instructive because it, it shows us the strength of what he's talking about when he says twist or distort. So the first time it's used is in Acts chapter 2, verse 20. Paul, uh, Peter is quoting in his famous Pentecost sermon from Joel chapter 2. And it says, the sun shall be turned, that's the word metastrepho, into darkness and the moon into blood. You notice the opposite there, the 180 degrees? So metastrepho is used when you're talking about complete opposite. And then the only other place is in James 4 and I when it says, let your laughter be turned, again metastrepho, to mourning and your joy to gloom. Once again, you've got exact opposites from laughter to to mourning. So Paul, I think, uses that word intentionally because of its force. And he's saying that this heteros gospel, this completely opposite gospel, this completely different gospel that they're preaching, is 100% opposite of the grace gospel. I'm telling you, Jesus paid it all, and these Judaizers are coming in and telling you, no, you've got to pay part of it on your own. And that's turning it completely 180 degrees on its head. So even the slightest addition or subtraction to grace turns it on its head. And then finally, he says, is grace worth fighting for? Absolutely. And he says, unashamedly so. Because in verse 10, uh, here he is saying, I'm not trying to persuade men. I'm not really concerned with what people think about me or not. I'm here to serve the Lord and to please God. And God's word is clear. So is grace worth fighting for? Absolutely. There's no question about it. And I think that last verse there, verse 10, is instructive as we move into how to defend grace graciously because I take comfort in knowing that even no less than the Apostle Paul recognized that sometimes his message was not going to be popular and, and that there were going to be people that said, you know, do you know what these Jewish leaders are going to think if you teach that? And don't you know how, how you're going to be looked down upon out of Jerusalem? And Paul was so confident in the message that he preached. Now granted, he had the benefit of the fact that he met the Lord face to face on the road to Damascus. But we have God's self-unveiling to us today. Right here. This is just as, this is just as authoritative as Paul's private meeting with Jesus. It is the very Word of God. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by some 40 different human authors in three different languages on three different continents, and it's God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. This is what I want you to know about me. That everything we need for life and godliness is right here in His Word. So, though we didn't meet with the Apostle or with the Lord Jesus face to face as the Apostle Paul did, we have the same foundation, and we can have the same degree of confidence. And we, like Paul, can say, I'm going to defend grace, and I'm going to do it confidently. There's a difference, however, between defending grace confidently and being mean-spirited and 
rude and harsh, unnecessarily so. So this is a difficult topic to sort of navigate because we live in an age, in the postmodern age, where simply taking a stand for something, by definition, makes you mean and hateful, right? So if I were to say to someone in a very formal, polite conversation, if we were to disagree and they were to say X and I were to say, I'm sorry, I believe you're wrong, then they're immediately going to say, you just hurt my feelings. You must hate me. You're so mean and hateful and hurtful. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, let me refer you to what I said. I didn't call them a name. I didn't insult their mother. I didn't, I don't think I got personal. I just said that they're wrong. And, and see, right and wrong are sort of these absolutes that don't exist anymore. And I, I used to get this in class all the time, especially at the college level. It's one of the reasons I finally left full-time academics. I just, it was just becoming so hard. The seminary level was a little better, but at college, I, just, I realized very quickly that I don't know nearly as much of the, as these 18 to 22-year-olds know. They know it all, and they're not afraid to tell you. Uh, no offense to any 18 to 22 year olds I'm sure present company excluded but um, so you know they'll say things like you know well you know I, I suppose you think your view is right to which I would say of course I do it would be utterly nonsensical for me to hold a view that I think is wrong why in the world would I do that why would I hold a view that I think is wrong so of course I hold my view. I think it's right. You know? Or students will raise their hand to ask a question, which is usually a three-minute lecture on what they believe. And they'll go on and on with their perspective, and then they'll say you know, something like, so don't you agree with me, professor? To which I would say, well, I could, but then we'd both be wrong. <laughs> so no, I don't. Um, so I, I try to be fair. I think I mentioned this to someone last night. I, I try to be fair and, and, and balanced, you know, in my uh, in my lectures and in my presentations. I like to give two sides of every issue, you know, my side and the wrong side, and then you can decide which one you want to uh, to be on. So, and I recognize not everybody's going to agree with me and Jesus on everything. So I'm okay with that, right? So here's some principles to keep in mind when defending the grace message. And understand, discerning between when someone is unfairly being angry with you and, and mischaracterizing you as being harsh when you weren't, and when you actually were. That, that's the, what we're stri- striving for here. Because there are times when in our passion for grace, we can get pretty animated and we can, you know, I was telling someone at the break, you know, you just want to choke them sometimes, you know. And I don't recommend that. Um, but when you get that animated and that passionate, sometimes you can say things you later regret. You can come across with an attitude that makes the person feel stupid. And so for me, that's especially hard because I, I am, you know, I've staked my life and my ministry and my income on promoting the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message. And so it, it, I'm learning, I'm a work in progress as we all are, uh, and I've had many a time when I've had to respond later to someone and say, listen, I'm sorry if I came across too harshly. I do respect you. I do love you. I still think you're wrong, but you know, I, I didn't mean to sound so personal, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but then there are some times when someone unfairly characterizes our perspective merely because of the fact that we have one that differs from theirs as being harsh. And in those cases, I think you just say, I'm, I'm not trying to please men. You know, I'm not trying to sound arrogant, right? You know, I was telling the guys last night, I don't mean to sound arrogant, but I'm pretty humble. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, you know, you can, you can actually say to the person, look, I really am not trying to sound arrogant. Um, and, and, and even if I do sound arrogant, just because I sound arrogant doesn't mean I'm not right. <laughs> um, just say, look, this is the view that I hold. And unless and, and until the Spirit of God, through the study of the Word of God, can show me the error of my way, this is what I'm going to... But I respect your view, even though I don't agree with it. So let me give you some principles here. We'll just kind of walk through some of these. Um, first of all, right off the bat... We need to recognize which issues are worth fighting for and which ones are not. So theology is is such a fun field to be in 
because there are so many issues that we could sit here and talk about all day. You know, when is the battle of Gog and Magog? Well, I've got eight options in my book. Uh, I mean, I know what me and Jesus believe, but I list the other seven as well, right? But the Bible is unclear about when the Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle will take place. And many other examples that we could talk about. And those things are fun, and I, I enjoy talking about them because I learn something. I just, in the midst of uh, completing a DVD series on the Olivet Discourse, I've done six of the ten so far. They're available for free, by the way, to watch on our uh, website. And over the next three or four weeks, I'll finish the other four. Um, but every time I study the Olivet Discourse, every time I, I, I'm able to connect a dot that I didn't connect before, or, you know, theology is a process. We're going to talk about that in a second. Um, and, and so we need, to rec- we need to hold our views with a modicum of, of humility, yet confidence in the truth of the Word of God. I mean, you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to capitulate to the postmodern mindset where every time you preach a message, you end by saying, but then again, what do I know? You know, that's not going to be very confident and very uh, reassuring to your audience and to your, you know, to, to the people that you're speaking uh, to. But at the same time, you want to recognize that, you know, on issues that are secondary issues, you know, we might be wrong, you know. Uh, I'm pretty sure the Battle of Gog and Magog won't happen before the rapture for a variety of reasons. Um, But could it happen after the tribulation starts, as many solid teachers believe? Uh, Sure. I tend to think it happens after the rapture, but before the tribulation. Uh, And there's a lot of good colleagues that agree with me on that. But, you know, maybe as I study, maybe ten years from now, you'll come to a conference of mine and you'll hear me promoting the Battle of Gog and Magog as part of the first half of the Tribulation. Because if, if that's what I think the Bible teaches. So, those are issues that maybe aren't worth fighting for. We've seen a lot in our years of pastoral ministry. We've seen uh, battles that are over not even doctrinal issues, but more preference issues. I had a family, I'm, I'm keeping a list of these. Someday I hope to write a book of anecdotes about this because some of these are pretty hilarious. But I had a family leave the church I was in one time years ago because the communion bread was too crunchy. <laughs> and, uh, and it was, became an issue that ultimately led to their departure. Now, it started out with... Uh, you know, complaints and phone calls, and uh, you know, this is before email, and and then it led to you know, well, we're not really going to change the communion bread. Everybody's pretty happy with it. We get a good deal on it. We buy it in bulk, or you know, whatever. And uh, so, sorry that you don't like it. So then, the next phase was they quit taking the bread, but they would only take the cup. So when the church would serve communion, this one family that sat on one row, I can picture them. They were on the right side from the sanctuary we were in. They would pass the plate. Just right on by, we're not going to eat this crunchy bread. And then eventually, when they didn't get their way, they left. Okay. I had another family leave a church one time because um, they were had always been in charge of the kitchen and did a fantastic job. I mean, they were really, it was kind of their baby. They, they owned it and they, they took care of it and they were very gifted in that area. But um, it was, at one point, the refrigerator broke and we needed a replacement. The replacement was delivered to the church at a time when that family, who were you know lay people, volunteers, weren't there. So the custodian, who was there, directed them to you know where to put it and to put it back in the place where the old one was. Well, the new refrigerator was a little shallower than the old one, so it sat back further between the two um, countertops on either side. And, uh, or one side, I guess it was. In any event, the, the sum result was the way it was, if you opened the door it was going to crimp into the countertop and dent the door. So the custodian and the delivery man solved the problem by moving the refrigerator door handle to the other side. You know, you can put them on either side, depending on your kit. This couple was infuriated. No one thought to check with them before deciding the door would open on a different direction and left the church over it. So uh, little things can become big things. So the first step is... Deciding what's worth fighting for. Now, in our context of this uh, series this weekend, obviously grace is what matters most. There's nothing that matters more than the gospel of grace. Um, And there are other non-negotiables as well. Um, 
but you, you got to decide what's worth fighting for and what's not. Some things are not. Some things are more legalistic issues. We have a tendency to turn preference issues into absolutes. The writer of Hebrews deals with this when he talks about, you know, it is good that the heart be established by grace, but not with foods and you know other legalistic things. Um, Paul says, make pursue the things which make for peace. You know that we may edify one another instead of looking for opportunities to draw a line we should look for opportunities to, to, to cooperate now again if, if, if the battle arises and it's a battle over an issue that's worth fighting for don't shy away from it but don't go looking for battles when they're unnecessary I like what Paul said in Romans 14 do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food uh, in my Bible, I wrote, "Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of crunchy communion bread." Um, you could fill in anything you want there, but um, you know, Paul basically is saying, you know, if 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 this is a stumbling block, I'm willing to let it go, even though I have the right to do it. You know. Second principle that I would suggest is reject any teaching that undermines or contradicts God's grace. You don't even have to think about that. You know, you don't have to revert back to number one and decide, well, is this worth fighting for or not? If it's an issue that is undermining or contradicting God's grace, you ought to have a knee-jerk reaction there. And this, again, goes back to what we just read, that if anyone is preaching any other gospel than that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. And, and you know, again, some people might say, well, what was the gospel that Paul preached to the Galatians. Wouldn't it be great if we knew what that was? Well, it just so happens we do. We have a record of it contained in the authority of God's Word from Romans chapters 13 and 14. We can go back and read the sermons that Paul preached to the Galatians and we know what his gospel was. And his gospel was Christ and Him crucified. Um, so if it's an issue on grace, then um, you know clearly we you know, reject it uh, uh, out of hand. And as I mentioned in the first session, you know, we have a, a biblical command here to note those who cause divisions contrary to the doctrine which we have learned and avoid them. So recognize which issues are worth fighting for. Reject any teaching that undermines or contradicts God's Word. And then, as I've mentioned a couple of times, remember that theology is a process, not a product. This has become a real foundational part of our you know, systematic theology courses that I've taught and, and, and really kind of a driving passion of mine is to resist the temptation to think of theology as a finished product. Now, it doesn't help matters that we call systematic theology books a theology. So someone will say, you know, I would like to purchase Ryrie's Theology, which would be you know, his one-volume basic theology book, or Paul Enns's Theology, which would be his one-volume handbook of theology, or Chafer's. I'd like to purchase his Theology, which is you know, his eight-volume set, as if it's a finished, completed work. But in reality, theology is a process that is lifelong until we get to glory, of digging into the Word of God, uh, studying it, and, and no, no man this side of glory can understand everything in the depths of God's Word that it has to offer. doesn't mean you don't land places doctrinally. Of course you do. And a systematic theology is a way to crystallize and categorize certain things that are very clearly taught in Scripture. But never get to the point where you think, okay, I've got it all figured out so I can close my Bible and now my, you know, my system becomes the arbiter of truth, right? And uh, you know, there's a, there are a lot of reasons people believe what they believe. Uh, and uh, we do a, a lot of worldview teaching and we have a, 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 a series that we go through on why do you believe what you believe and we talk about false reasons to believe what you believe. Uh, the only ultimate reason to believe what you believe is what does the Bible say? And there are a lot of influences on our belief system. For example, I grew up in a Christian family, and uh, I was taught uh, from the time I was in diapers that you know you had to be three things to get to heaven. Right? You had to be a Baptist, a Republican, and a Dallas Cowboys fan. So, you know, 
And obviously, the more I grew and mature in the faith, the more I realized that really only one of those is necessary. So uh, anyway, and my son's name is Landry, so you can kind of figure out which one that is. But, um, but seriously, we are all a product of the culture in which we live. Um, and that can be helpful, but it can also kind of lead us away from the Bible sometimes. So we've got to always bring it back to what does the Bible say. So let me give you five steps here in the process of theology uh, that are, I think, helpful in remembering that it really is a process. Uh, and as you'll see from these steps along the way, you draw some conclusions. I'm not at all promoting some type of nebulous, you know, all, you know some people have, have pointed out that postmodernism is all signpost and no destination. And I think that's a good metaphor because in the postmodern age, you never really land anywhere because there's no absolutes. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm vehemently opposed to that. But what I am saying is that this, the, process, the spiritual maturity process, the discipleship process, the sanctification process, is just that, a process. And theology uh, is a process of constantly going back to the Word of God and, and, and studying and refining what His Word says as we connect the dots. So the first three steps are what I call the development phase. Uh, and so the three steps in the development phase and two steps in the implementation phase, five steps altogether. The first step in the development phase is start with the Bible. <laughs> Sounds pretty obvious, but you know, you've got to begin with some authority, some standard, some ultimate arbiter. Uh, and in theology, that's the Bible. So church history is important. What the church father said is important. All those things have some bearing and can be helpful. But at the end of the day, it's what does the Bible say? And we study it in its literal, grammatical, historical context. Then step two uh, is uh, what, what theologians call the analogy of faith, that Scripture best interprets itself, and that is you compare Scripture with Scripture. So the idea here is you start with a passage of Scripture, and you look at it in its literal, grammatical, historical context, and then you begin to broaden out from there and look at what other passages say. It's what we call cross-referencing. So if you have a good study Bible, it's going to have uh, in the center column cross-references and compare uh, Scripture with Scripture. Uh, most notably, a lot of times in the New Testament, that's going to be a cross-reference to an Old Testament passage that was just quoted. So that, that's very helpful. By the way, anytime the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, you should take the time to look it up in the Old Testament and see what the context is. It'll help you avoid a lot of interpretive error in the New Testament. But sometimes it's just thematic connections. It's what we call theological synthesis or scriptural synthesis. Comparing scripture with scripture. And it's at that step that really is where we begin to build our theology. So you know, we we can look at a number of passages that, that that support you know doctrines like eternal security or salvation by grace through faith or the pre-tribulational rapture or the inerrancy of Scripture and those kinds of things. But remember that step two, uh, if if you look at your study Bible and you compare those scriptures, you know it was man that you know put those cross references in there so you know a study bible is just one scholar's attempt to kind of point out verses that should be looked at together but those are not infallible, right? I guarantee you that the, the cross references in the Ryrie study bible are quite different from the ones in say the Benny Hinn study bible, okay? If they if even has one, I don't know. But you see my point. So once you get to step two, you, you know you need to. You're going to make your own cross references too. You know, as you're, this is what I mean about when I was studying the Olivet Discourse. You know, as I'm studying it, maybe I just studied another passage and something thematically comes to mind, and I connect that dot. And so it's this process. So step one is start with a passage. Step two, broaden the focus, compare scripture with scripture, and then step three is formulate a clear belief statement. So you you know you you start with a passage, then you study the whole counsel of God on that issue, and in theory, uh, once you've studied what the whole Bible has to say about it, you can say, okay, I can form some conclusions about salvation. I can form some conclusions about angelology or demonology or whatever the topic might be, and so that's where we get our doctrinal statements from, you know. But again, it, you know, it's not like once you've studied all that the Bible has to say about angels, you can check that off your list and say, oh, there's never anything else I can learn about angels. I've learned it all. You're still going to constantly go back and study, and occasionally you might refine it and so forth. But there are certain uh, truths that are so abundantly clear that once we've arrived at step three, we can say, you know what? Um, 
you know, this is pretty clear, right? Another interpretive rule of Scripture is you always interpret the obscure in light of the clear, right? So if you've got 160 verses in the New Testament, by the way, plus, 160 plus, that condition eternal life upon faith alone and Christ alone, and a couple of verses that at first reading in English sort of seem to make it sound like works are necessary to get to heaven, you know, sometimes you can begin, sometimes you might come upon a passage that at first reading is a little puzzling and you're like, I'm not really sure what this means. But you can start by ruling out some things. You can say, well, I don't really know what this means. I need to do some more study. But I can tell you what it doesn't mean. And it doesn't mean you have to do good works to get to heaven because there's 160 plus verses that make it abundantly clear you don't. Uh, and by the way, we have an appendix that lists all those verses in Getting the Gospel Wrong if you wanted to study those. Um, so here you've finished three steps, but notice I said this is five steps in the process of theology. A lot of people think they're done with this process once they've formulated a clear belief statement. But that's not the purpose of theology. There are two more steps, and this is the implementation phase in the process. The implementation phase. And step four is to evaluate the world's truth claims through the lens of this grid that you've created through the first three steps, right? So you study what the Bible says about the sanctity of life, and then you hear what the world says about it, right? For example, you know, you've got one candidate right now, not to get political, but I can't help myself. Plus, I'm leaving in two hours, so I figure I'll let Paul clean up the mess after I leave. Uh, you know, you got one candidate who believes in you know partial birth abortion, you know, woman's right to choose, supports Planned Parenthood with millions of dollars, and you know. But enough about Trump. Uh, anyway, um, you know. So then you say, well, this is what the world's saying about life. What does the Bible say? And I've got to have the courage to invalidate or reject truth claims that the that the world is making, which the Bible clearly rejects. Right. So, in other words, you're putting to use this grid that you've created through this ongoing process of step one, step two, step three. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say elsewhere? What can I conclude about that? Let me start over. What does the Bible say? What does it say elsewhere? What can I conclude about that? And you're constantly studying the Word, building this interrelated grid of biblical beliefs so that when the world hurls these beliefs at you, right, you, that, that don't pass through the grid, you can keep them out. Right? But guess what? You still haven't finished the process of theology with the fourth step. There are The, the world is filled with biblically brilliant but morally bankrupt people. And I can, I can think of one example off the top of my head of a, a guy um, that I worked with who, who did this process all the way through step four. But come to find out he was not a theologian because he didn't go all the way to step five. See, he was the chairman of the theology department at a school where I was the dean, and he was also a pastor. He had a radio show. He was in his late 60s at the time that I knew him. This has been more than 10 years ago. And he certainly did the first three steps. He was a student of the Word. He would stand up in the pulpit or classroom, and he would reject the world's truth claims based on the conclusions that he had drawn. But for 10 years straight, he was having an affair with the secretary at the church who was not his wife. So he was not going to step five, which was to apply personally what you've learned to your own life because the goal of theology and the goal of Bible study is to change your life. The goal of the theology process isn't to get smarter, to get it figured out, to win Bible trivia games, you know, to earn degrees, certainly not to make money. Right? The goal of theology is to change your life, to conform to the image of Christ, to become more like Him. And until you've accomplished that... You, you're not doing theology. So you've got the development phase and the implementation phase. Now, to look at this in more of an academic setting, you could say, take these same five steps, these same five steps, and, and overlay the areas of, uh, the formal areas of, in academia of theology. So let me do that. You've got the first, what I call pre theology, which is, you know, what is your hermeneutic? Not all hermeneutics are created equal. What is your exegetical method and so forth? But after that foundation, then you've got the five steps. Here they are, right? Biblical theology. 
What does the Bible say in context? Systematic theology. What do I find when I compare Scripture with Scripture and build my systematic theology? Doctrinal theology. What conclusions can I draw as I systematize and categorize it into statements of belief? Uh, that's the analysis, synthesis, and development phase. Right? And then you, can get, you could add comparative theology which is what is the world saying and how does that compare with the conclusions I drew from God's Word? And finally, applied theology, which is the implementation phase. And the result, if you do these steps consistently and regularly and stay at it for a lifetime, is you're developing a biblical worldview. And so we need to remember that theology is a process, not a product. And by remembering that, it it reminds us when we're engaged in a disagreement with someone, may, it gives us just that slight pause to think, maybe I'm still a work in progress on this issue and I need to go back and study it more quickly, I mean more thoroughly, before I so quickly dismiss what they're saying. Now again, I'm not saying we, be, we, we are wishy-washy. Again, you should reject my number two point. Reject emphatically any, issue, any belief that undermines or contradicts the gospel of grace. But by remembering that it's a process, it, it reminds us that, you know, it helps us do number four, which is reflect humility when defending your views. It helps us do that when we think of theology as a process and not a product. So reflect humility when defending your views. Paul said in Colossians 3, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering, bearing with one another. Right? He says, in forgiving one another. Anyone has a complaint against another. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. And be thankful. So, if we really understand grace the way we should, and the way we think we do, then even when we're defending grace to someone who's attacking grace, just the sheer fact that we know what, how amazing God's grace is in our own life, and there but by the grace of God go I, and what a wretched sinner I am, it ought to make us really out of love want for their own well-being, even the most staunch, reformed, lordship, you know, Calvinistic, non-grace person you can find. For their own good. Now I understand. I believe me. I, I know what you're thinking. I've been there, and so you you don't react that way in the flesh. You react with I want to choke them, right? You know. But if we really love them, because by the way, many of the people that we end up in these debates with, they are believers, right? So let's let's not forget that. Sometimes we think because someone disagrees with us, especially on important issues, that we when we're thinking about them or reading their books and articles, we picture them with a pitchfork and horns and a tail. <laughs> and then you meet them in person and you know they, you find out that they love Jesus, they have their quiet time every day, they serve the Lord, they sing the same songs you do in church. They're just wrong. We have an honest disagreement about certain issues. But let's not forget, in, in many cases, we're dealing with a brother or sister in the Lord. Uh, going on in this passage, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. With grace in your hearts to the Lord. Reflect humility when defending your views. Resist the temptation to compromise for friendships, money, or other practicalities. Um, I've seen this happen many, many times, especially on this crossless gospel issue. I had a, a well-known uh, advocate of grace sit down with me at lunch and uh, tell me he had, he had endorsed uh, my first edition of Getting the Gospel Wrong, which is no longer in print. Um, and after doing so, uh, he evidently hadn't read it before he endorsed it, and that I knew I we know each other well, and I know his view, and I knew he agreed with everything I had written. So, and he assumed he he did. That's why he didn't mind endorsing it. But later on, someone pointed out that I had, in in a footnote at that time, criticized the crossless gospel view, and the main proponents of the crossless gospel view, when they saw that he had endorsed my book in which I had criticized them, stopped carrying his book in their ministry on their online store. So this guy has lunch with me later and he says, you know what, if I'd have known 
that I was going to lose all those sales from my book, I never would have endorsed your book. And I'm thinking, okay, that's an interesting perspective, but shouldn't the bigger concern be you endorse what you agree with and you don't endorse what you don't agree with? Should money really be the driving factor there? I mean, do you agree with this or not? I sat on a plane next to a guy providentially. This is another leading guy. He used to be a professor at Dallas Seminary, which, by the way, most profs at Dallas now, and I love Dallas. I'm a graduate of there. But a lot of their profs now have, have kind of departed from traditional dispensationalism and from the grace perspective. They're highly reformed. Not all of them but the vast majority of them. And it was already kind of drifting that way when I was there in, back in 1990. Um, but this is a well-known professor from there who um, have got some of his writings, and I know what he believes on the gospel, and I know he believes that, that you have to believe Jesus died and rose again for your sins. But because one of the leading proponents, who, by the way, is with the Lord now, uh, at the time, though, was living, was a good friend of his, he said, I just, he said, I'm loathe. I can hear him saying it now. I am loath to criticize my colleague, you know, and um, it's on no less of an issue than the gospel. So we had been at this conference together, and then providentially we ended up taking the same plane out of Scranton back to Philly, and it was a small plane, and uh, you know, uh, ER, EMJ, or whatever, the two and one, or the yeah, the two and one, and so we were on the two side, and providentially the Lord put us right together. So I just asked him. I said, so don't you believe this and this and this? And yeah, I do. I, do. I mean, I, th- I thought you did, but now don't you know he believes that? Yeah, I know, but man, we've been friends for so long, and I just, you know. So don't compromise. We all have our limits, no matter how passionate you are about views and, and how correct they are. Be careful, because there may come a time when you have to choose your friends over the gospel. And, and we've had to do that. Uh, number six, resolve to hold firm even in the face of persecution. I had some good friends and um, counselors and confidants that helped me through uh, navigating through a lot of this conflict back when I was president of the FGA and some other organizations that were dealing with this battle. And I can't tell you the number of times I would call them or they would call me uh, just coincidentally and I needed an encouraging word at the time. And they would remind me here of number six that, look, you know, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Pastoring is not for the faint of heart. Faint of heart. Leading organizations is not for the faint of heart. Hold on to what you believe in, and don't let this this criticism uh, get you down. Number seven: respond graciously in your tone, demeanor, and attitude. Now, this is important because. Um, we all know people who their natural proclivity is more towards a negativity in their tone and demeanor. And some people are naturally inclined more towards a jovial, jovial, uh, jubilant type of uh, tone. And so I've been told sometimes when I'm speaking passionately about something that it came across negative even though in my heart I really wasn't meaning it that way at all. So, so in some cases I have to make a special effort that my tone and my demeanor and you know, look people in the eye and look, hey, I love you. I'm not, I don't mean anything personal by this. I think you're awesome. Uh, but you know, here, here's, here's why I can't agree with you on that. And please know I respect you. I just don't agree with you. Uh, and so make an effort to do that. You know, Ecclesiastes says, the words of a wise man's mouth are gracious. So as we talk about defending grace graciously, just remember if you're not doing that, you're a fool. (laughs) You know, do you want to be a fool or do you want to be wise? Going back to Colossians in chapter 4, Paul says, Let your speech always be with grace. Oh, that that were true for, for us, right? Even Jesus said, you know, Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, right? But we want to go out with our bow or our 30 off six and, you know, don't be harmless as enough. All right, number eight, realize we will all give an account for our thoughts, attitudes, and actions someday. That's a sobering thought. But as we talked about in the first session, Romans 14 says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And by realizing that we'll give an account for our thoughts, attitudes, and actions someday, it may cause us to pause before we say that thing that we so much want to say, you know, like, you dummy, you know, don't recommend that. Um, 
Number nine, rest in God's grace and trust Him to resolve any conflicts. I threw that one in there because I'm keenly aware that in many cases the grace issue has divided families, it's divided relatives, it's divided lifelong friends. Um, and, and I know it's painful when someone you so dearly love holds a different view on this issue. But the same grace that saves us is the same grace that sustains us. And rest in that grace. And in God's way and in His time, if we continue to be gracious, you know, it really is a spiritual battle ultimately. And as we pray for others to just, you know, if they're in the Word, it's the message of God's grace has to jump off the page at them sometime. You know, it just has to. The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So hopefully, eventually, they will, they will get it. So rest in His grace. Remember what Paul said in St. Corinthians 12, My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Uh, and God's grace is sufficient even in situations where grace is being assaulted. That's the amazing thing about grace. And then number ten, and finally, reinforce the grace message at every opportunity. And what I mean by that is, sometimes when we think of it as a battleground, we sort of instinctively kind of get worked up about it going into a discussion. Because, oh, I'm going to have another one of these discussions. I'm going, to, I'm going to step into the ring. Right? But if you think of grace as simply an everyday part of the conversation, so that you can talk about it, you can reflect on it, you can, we call it instinctive evangelism. You know, a lot of ministries teach you know, intentional evangelism, and I'm not hung up over the terms, but I really like our approach better of instinctive because intentional almost makes it sound like you've got to put it on your to do list for the day, and you've got to, st- okay, today I'm going to be intentional, I'm going to share Christ with someone. But really, it ought to be so instinctive that you just share in Christ everywhere you go. <laughs> You know, as you're in casual conversation. And by the way, that's really what the Great Commission is all about. Remember, the command in the Great Commission is make disciples, not a tuo. The uh, command is not go. Go in the Great Commission, go into all the world. That's not a command. It's actually a participle, and it literally means as you're going. So as you're going to the store, to school, to work, to your neighborhood party, to wherever you go, make disciples. Share Christ. Talk about grace. You know, isn't God's grace... Someone shares with you some good news. Well, isn't God's grace amazing? And it's so amazing that it's free too, you know. And just and you begin to just talk about it at every opportunity. And if nothing else, what that will do was it will give us an outlet for all that pent up passion and enthusiasm and excitement about grace that we so strongly feel. So that maybe the edge is, edge comes off a little bit when we find ourselves in a confrontation with someone who's contradicting grace. We won't feel the need to just burst forward with you know all this information, and so reinforce the grace message at every opportunity. Peter's famous words here, um, the apologia, the defense. He says, "Always be ready to give a defense." He says, you know, in, in Paul in Ephesians five he says, "Walk circumspectly, meaning carefully, cautiously, wisely, as you're living life, redeeming the time." So. Is grace worth fighting for? Absolutely. Defend grace at all costs. Never compromise. But be gracious in doing so. Because otherwise we're defeating the whole purpose. And we're actually hurting the cause of grace rather than helping it. So let's pray together.